Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the War Room, the interview series as part of the Clone Star podcast. I am your host, Shore Hurley, and joining me today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome author Derek Attico onto our show, who has recently just completed the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko. Derek, welcome to the show. Joe, thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, uh, oh my God, we, we we have the same book, Derek. Gee, oh we have God. the same book. How, how did that happen? This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. <laughs> Derek, I have to ask you straight out. Like, I, I, I'll obviously jump into the parts about DS9 la, later on, things like that. But how did Star Trek come into your life, specifically DS9? Did you like it from the very start or at some point did it just come into your world? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I I wasn't to talk about DS9. Let's talk about really quick uh, TNG. I wasn't that fond of TNG. When it first came out, um, it was. Oh only my God! After... This this interview is over immediately. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. I'll be honest. I wasn't. And and um, it was only when um, I started writing my first um, professional um, short story, Alpha and Omega, for research. I started rewatching or, or actually watching TNG, and I was like, oh wow, it's just like TOS, which I loved. Hmm. And then I then I really fell in love with TNG. So. When DS9 premiered, I was like, okay, well, how is this going to be different from TNG? Because TNG had done some really good things. And I was floored. The first three minutes of DS9, it just really sets a pace and a tempo. And it says, we're Star Trek, but we are Star Trek like you've never seen before, like you've never felt before. And we're here and we're not, we're not, this is unapologetic, but this is who we are. Uh, uh, Wolf 359. Um, just the, the pace of it, the words on the screen. In, in the first three minutes, the man loses his ship, his friends, his wife, and he's watching his ship explode. And that's the beginning. That's that's your intro. I was like, what's going on? So I was in love. I was, I was in love. <laughs> I think it's one of those things, that I, and I've spoken about it so many times on our show, is that uh, Emissary is one of those episodes, I think that when you've got more life experience that you really appreciate it, more and more like when I first watched it I remember I watched it in premiere night and seeing Cisco kind of giving Picard you know, a bit of guff and I was thinking who the hell does this guy think he is but it was only years later when I returned to it I was there going oh wait a second I completely understand this and this is actually unbelievable and I, one of the things Derek is do you see DS9 still as kind of being you know the odd one out in the Star Trek series and kind of even within that do you find as well that the first three seasons of DS9 are kind of even the odd one out within DS9 as a whole, because people, they talk about DS9, they look at DS9, they very much look at the war years, which is season four onwards. They don't even pay attention to the first three. That's a really good point, Joe. Um, I, I think that D, D Space Nine, that first episode, Emissary, set a particular tone. And uh, with Mr. Avery Brooks and the, the creation of the character, of Benjamin Sisko with Avery Brooks playing it, we had a captain and we had a character that was uh, just so powerful and so in your face and so present that when he went up against um, Picard and Patrick Stewart, you know, it was something that no one expected. It was just so from left field. We're like, where is this coming from? But I think what Deep Space Nine has done and continues to do even now, 30 years later, is it shows us the Star Trek universe, a more realistic version of the Star Trek universe. It shows us 
what would happen if we had the Star Trek universe, there would be people out there on the fringes of the Federation, the fringes of space that are still trying to grapple with yeah. issues and with things. And they may not like the Federation, whereas maybe inside of the Federation, things are happy or hunky-dory or on certain planets. There are people on the outside of that and saying, hey, you know, we're suffering out here or, or, we're, or we don't have it all figured out and we might envy or not like you because, you know, because you do. Um, and so in, in that respect, also, I think that um, I, I know there's a story that um, that um, uh, Iris Stephen uh, Bear um, tells, where I think it was it was in the hiatus between season one and two, if I recall. He said he went to go see uh, Avery Brooks um, in a performance, and I think it, it was a performance of um, it was either like it was like Othello or or it was some performance that that Avery Brooks was doing. Uh, I think it might have been a Paul Robeson performance. And he realized during that performance watching him, he's like, oh, there's no problem with Avery Brooks. The problem is with our writing. Yeah, We need to bring our writing up to this actor. And after that, you start to see a change, not just in Cisco's words and writing, but in the ideas and ideals for Deep Space Nine. Because by season two, they have started to implement ideas about uh, the, the changelings and the founders and all that. So he's a whole, uh, almost like a, a fulcrum or sea change starts to happen. And I, and I think a large part, they will say, those writers will say, because of that event, they start to shift things. And it became a, a, a show with a lot more gravitas, I think, than it had, um, or maybe than it was planned to have um, in season one, if that's and, something I can say. And was the character of Ben Sisko somebody that you immediately kind of associated with? Like, is he someone that you were immediately interested in? I was definitely immediately interested in him. First of all, I knew of Avery Brooks, Mr. Avery Brooks, from uh, his time on uh, Spencer, Spencer for Hire. For hire. <laughs> right. And man Ray named Hawk. Hawk. Yeah. Right, man named Hawk. What was interesting to me, and I also knew of his work, um, he has a, a, an affection uh affection for um the the uh actor and, and singer Paul Robeson. And so I knew of these things, but what was so fascinating was that when he was in his portrayal of Benjamin Sisko, it was like nothing he had done before. So he was bringing something totally completely different to Benjamin Sisko. It was just like wow, because Avery Brooks is always this person with this presence and in Benjamin Sisko, he still has that presence, but a lot of it is tempered. A yeah. lot of it is contained, you know? And it's like, wow, that's that's very that's very interesting. Um, and then, of course, you know, he, he was a Black man on television in 1993 in a, in a time when there wasn't really a Black male lead in uh, drama on television. You had, you had um, Bill Cosby and the Huxtables, which mm -hmm. was a great show, but that's pretty much a comedy. Yep. You know, you don't you didn't really have anything, any drama. I think maybe homicide, life on the street, but that's you know, that's that's crime. You didn't really have anything that was uplifting, science fiction that was pushing us forward. And Deep Space Nine was the only thing, and Star Trek was the only thing representing that through Avery Brooks and Benjamin Sisko. And I think it's worth the yeah, I was, I was just thinking there, I, I can't remember where it was. It could have been in the documentary we left behind, but it wasn't just the fact that, you know, the black character leading the show, he was also a single father as well. And That's I was right. thinking at the time, I, I can't remember where I saw it, but they were talking about like, 
all these lists of kind of, you know, you know, great father figures on TV. And Avery Brooks, Ben Sisko is never part of that conversation because his relationship with Jake is brilliant from the very start to the end. It really is. And it's, it's always overlooked in television. Um, and it's interesting that um, for the, the Huxables, that's a great father relationship, father-son relationship as well. But for me, I know uh, watching those two at the time, I enjoyed watching the Cosby show, of course. You know, it was, it was, it was a cool show. But I took Deep Space Nine more seriously just because it was a drama. Yeah. And and because it was science fiction, something I was identified with, but the stakes were different. It wasn't a laugh at you know, and we wrap everything up at the end of you know thirty minutes or an hour. You know, he was a man that was started out on the show as a widow, yeah. trying to raise his son. Didn't always know what he was doing, but was trying, and and acknowledged that, acknowledged that to people around him, acknowledged that to his son, and to me, that just felt innately more realistic and organic than anything I was seeing on television at the time. And I think what's great is as his relationship with Jake develops, because like, obviously, you know, the character Jake is growing up as well. It's how he interacts in those certain kind of scenes where he doesn't know kind of what to do. Like when Jake is dating a Davo girl, when Jake is friends with <laughs> Nog and things like that. And it's just how they play it is so kind of good in terms of, you know, he has to learn to accept his son for decisions that he's making. And what's great about the character then as well, obviously, is the fact that he's big enough to admit kind of when he's wrong, because in the scene where, say, Jake brings a dog girl over for dinner and they have a conversation and she completely schools him and he, he accepts it and he doesn't get, you know, he's kind of big enough to say, you know what, I got this wrong and I'm actually fine with that. It's a great lesson there, again, to kind of, you know, as you were saying, it's a 7th and 24th century, but it's a human lesson to kind of learn, like, don't judge a book by its cover. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Um, an another moment that really comes to mind is when Nog comes to 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 Ben Cisco and wants him to mentor him, and Ben already has this almost innate prejudice towards Ferengi. Yeah, and he didn't even he doesn't even realize that he has it, but he has it, and, and most people in the Starfleet have it. And then he realizes he says, you know, um, um, once they once he and Nog have that conversation, he realizes that that's something that he has to confront within himself and put that away and and mentor Nog. So he is learning through these young people, you know, and it's this older or this adult learning through young people. And it also what I really loved about Deep Space Nine is that we have moments of young people trying to find their way. Yeah. Making mistakes. And we saw them grow up as they didn't always make the right decisions, but they were trying. And I thought that was very interesting and very real and very honest to show those things so to show even to show the missteps many times from nog from jake on that show it was really 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 inspiring stuff and how long have you had the idea to do this book oh well i i wanted to do it way before i got the uh project landed, uh, before i was given the permission to do it i mean um when uh they did the, the the Titan books um has done some beautiful work with the uh autobiography series. And so yeah. they they did Kirk, they did um Spot, they did Picard, and then they skipped over Benjamin Sisko and they did Janeway. Janeway. Right. And I was expecting, I think I many of us was was expecting to them to do a uh, Benjamin Sisko one, but they skipped it and they did Janeway. And I was like, oh wow, um, if if Titan Books ever does 
Benjamin Cisco, man, that would be great if I could get it. Oh, that's that'll never happen. But if it did, how would I do it? And so right then I started thinking about how I would do it. But I mean, that's not ever going to happen. <laughs> and then and then um, somebody does a podcast talking about how the Ben Cisco autobiography is skipped. And some person on Twitter is like, hey, I read um, Attico's um 2016 Strange New World story, The Dream of the Dream, about Benny Russell. He'd be a great fit for uh, Benjamin Sisko autobiography. I remember that, that piece. I remember that, yeah. That got into Titan Books. They saw that. They went and read the short story, Dream of the Dream. Yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, he'd be a good fit. And then they reached out to me. Now, when they reached out to you, were you kind of there going, this is crazy. There's no way I can write a bloody book about this man in his voice. Or did you say, no, I'm 100% going to do this. I have my doubts, but I can deal with them and I can do this. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that with a paraphrase. I love film, right? <laughs> so there's a there's a line in Ghostbusters, um, the original Ghostbusters. If anyone ever asks you if you're a god, oh. you say yes. <laughs> 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 and 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 kids, if you don't know, go see the film or go watch the film. You understand the joke in that. But I mean, I'm gonna say no. I mean, of course. And and I had been thinking about it for a while. And um, George Sanderson reached out to me. And he's like, "There's a project I'd like to talk to you about." And I was like, "Project?" And he's like, "Yeah, we we read that uh, short story, and uh, we'd like to have a discussion with you about the autobiography of Benjamin, Benjamin Cisco. How how would you do it?" And so I told him uh, my idea. I said, "Well." I figured I don't have the project, so nothing, there's no harm, there's no fouls, nothing lost, and just saying what I would like to do. And I said, you know, it has to be a story of a father to a son. It has to be. Yeah. Before anything, you know, um, even before it's an autobiography, it just has to be a father talking to his son. That's what, it, that's the core of, in many ways, Deep Space Nine, the core of it is family. Yeah. And at the core of that family has always been Ben and Jake. And mm -hmm. then other family, you know, other than then um there's of course there's 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 Ram, Nog, you know, um um Quark, you know, all, all the other families, you know, the the the, the O'Briens, all the other families, but at the core of it is the Cisco's. And I said, so it has to it has to start there. And uh, I was like, well, you know, Ben is in the wormhole. And I was like, well, I, I have a way to get around that. Um, much like <clears> the Greek gods have 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 talked to man in mythology, I can work around that. And he's like, oh, I like that idea. I like that idea. And we were off to the races. So so when you started doing it, look, the obvious question that I'd say you're being asked a million times, did you talk to Avery Brooks? Everybody, well, a lot of people <laughs> ask that. That's not the most asked question. The most asked question is, will Mr. Avery Brooks do uh, the audio book? And the answer to that question is, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, um, who knows? You know, um, maybe if the book does well, maybe he will be approached to to, to do it. Um, did I speak to him? No, I did not. Um, would I have loved to? Of course, I would have loved to. Um, but but honestly, I if I had had the option, I don't even know if I would have taken it because that would have been very intimidating. <laughs> um, I've spoken to him. I, I, I've met him three times. I've spoken to him once. Uh, the the man has an energy yeah. and a presence. That is palpable. Believe me, when I say it's palpable, it's like 
wow. Um, so I've actually shaken his hand once, and I've done something I will never forget. Um, so I, I think know it's, take- it's probably one of those things, Derek, isn't it? Is that when you met him, it was probably a case of what do I ask him that stands out that nobody else has ever asked him before? And it's not going to be some stupid question that he's going to say, I've answered that a million times. Why are you asking me that? And trying to say something profound to him that stands out. Yeah, I was, I was, I was actually with my mentor at the time and uh, mentor in, in film. Um, and we were going into a restaurant in Harlem and he was coming out and Really quick, I just thanked him um, for all his work. And I asked him, what was it like to direct Far Beyond the Stars? And he shook his hand. And he just looked at me and said, necessary. <laughs> and yes, that's exactly what you'd expect him to say. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and walked off. You know, and that was it. And, I, and it's like this presence, you know. And I, I was, I was, yes, I was swooning. You know, literally swooning. Um, so, you know, so I, with that in mind, I don't know if I would have wanted to have um, talked to him about uh, the book because it would have just been so intimidating, to be quite honest, to really be yeah. honest. And and there were times that uh, I was when I first started writing this, I started thinking about the the uh, weight of what I was writing, mm-hmm. and I was like, you know, I just have to put all that out of my head and just focus on them writing a project and getting it done. Because if you think too much about things and writers are always in their heads, then you can mess it up, you know? So yeah. I was like, I didn't want to do that. So yeah. So who did you speak to then in kind of preparation for this? Or did you kind of just by and large just kind of go at your, on your own? Yeah, no, it's all me. It's me. Um, uh, the, only, the only person that I really spoke to and talked things out with was George Sanderson, the uh, managing editor of Titan. And uh, I told him um, a lot of my ideas uh, for the for the the, the book, um, things that I wanted to happen in Ben's life, um, things that I thought would be uh, instrumental and pivotal for the character. Because Ben Sisigo is such a balanced character, unlike any captain that we've seen. You know, he doesn't he ha- he has trauma, but he's balanced. He has the work life balance pretty much figured out. You know, he's not micromanaging his people. So the trick with Ben Sisigo is to figure out how he got there. Yeah. How, where did all that balance come from? And it had to come from places in his family and his and in his childhood. So I had to build that. And so George and I talked about that. And then I had to um, write an outline. And then that outline had to be approved um, by uh, Titan and by CBS. So it took about a week to write that outline. Two questions then straight away that from coming from social media kind of correspond to this part in your story. One is from our good friend Chris Trecken. How much freedom did you have in writing the book from the execs? Was there anything they kind of said you can't, you have to do or things that said you can't do? Well, Chris, that's a great question for Chris. Um, and thank you, Chris, for that question. Um, no, no, that this is also, I should mention, my first novel which people may find a, a little weird or wild, but this is also my first novel. And, and so I'm very thankful uh, to have done this with Titan because they were really hands off. You know, it was like, well, uh, an outline has to be uh, to us by this date, manuscript by this date, you know? And so it was pretty much uh, what I wanted to do. I think 
in all honesty, and this is just my impression, I don't know, but I, I, I've been writing Star Trek on and off since 2005 professionally. They read the uh, 2016 story, Dreamer in a Dream. So they knew I had a certain level of understanding um, yeah. and capability with Star Trek, you know, and I, I know Star Trek backwards and forward at, at this point. There's nothing I don't know about Star Trek. So I think that was never a question. It was just a matter of what I was going to put in. And I think um, they would probably ask questions like after the outline was written. But once I gave them the outline, they read it and they didn't really have any problems with it. They're like, okay, this is cool. And Tracker 57, who I call Mask Tracker because I was a big fan of Mask back in the old days. Um, I'm exposing my age there as being a, a 1982 child. Um, what <laughs> challenges, if any, did you come across writing the book? Oh, my God. Uh, Trekker, Trekker 57? Trekker, yeah. Uh, Trekker, yeah. Yeah, a lot of challenges. Um, creating the creating the origin story of Benjamin Sisko. Um creating the people in his life. One of the one of the biggest challenges was the fact that um, on the show, he mentions uh, that he has two brothers and it's like one line in yeah. the second season. And I was like, <sighs> and we don't see them for the whole seven years. And I'm like, so what am I going to do for that? And then seventh season, he mentions that he has a sister, Judith, Yep. Like in two different episodes. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do for, you know, because <laughs> why have we not seen these people at all or yeah. mentioned? And and so then I realized, well, you know, I, the easy way to have gone would have been like to give them like you know, they're dead or some kind of trauma. But I said, no, I think the, the more organic thing to do would just to be to create well-rounded, full human beings. And therefore, they become really interesting characters with their own lives. You know, and with siblings, you know, you, you don't always hear from your siblings because they're too busy doing their their own stuff, you know. Um, one, of, so I, I just, one, of, one of the things actually, sorry, that's going across. Uh, one of the things no, I, no. I, I found really kind of brilliant about the book when I was reading it is, as I read it, I was very conscious of the fact that I was there going, this very much sounds like Benjamin Sisko's voice that I'm reading. Like it read like this was written by him. It didn't feel like it was someone else writing for him. How did you strike that balance? Did you just kind of feel that you were so in tune with the character yourself? And then kind of along with that, how much of you is in that character? Or is it none of you all Benjamin Sisko? Wow, that's a great question, Shell. Um, well, uh, briefly, I got a rhythm for him in the 2016 Dreamer in a Dream. Um, but then to come back around to that in uh, twenty. 2022 um was 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 interesting i watched um in the pale moonlight i think about three or four times back to back one day uh, because that episode is basically almost like a a play and it's just him in a narrative piece of yeah. benjamin cisco or mr avery brooks just speaking to the camera and just to get his voice and one of the first things i i realized about this book is that the book can't start out with the voice. It's a little tricky to explain. It can't start out overall with the voice of Benjamin Sisko because we as we never start out with who we are now, you know, in yeah. as, as adults. That voice evolves from children up. So not only did I have to kind of um really get the voice of Benjamin Sisko as an adult, but I had to kind of 
get there. So I had to create an arc so that by the, you know, him as a kid and him as a teenager. And so then by the time I get to him as an adult, you should almost start to hear and yeah. see the Ben Cisco, if that makes sense, you know? And, and that was a little tricky because I was like, well, how am I going to do that? And so I just started writing him as a kid. And I was like, okay, uh, I, I've, I've got the kid. And then I started writing the teen. I was like, I've got the teenager. And then I just started to blend all three. And in, in regards to um, how much of me is in this book, um, a, a fair amount, I think. Um, some life experiences um, of mine I've given to Ben only because... I think they uh, inform the character. Yeah. And if something can inform a character um, in, you, in your own life, I think it becomes more authentic for that character. Yes. And you actually preempted one of my questions here, uh, Derek, actually, uh, because you've said you watched In the Pale Moonlight uh, back to back a few times. It was a, We put this up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and we had a poll on it. So I was going to ask you and not only you have to answer yes or no, but you have to justify your it's like, like high school debating. Um, was Cisco <laughs> right in the Pale Moonlight in the decision he made? Hell yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, well, I, I mean, but I mean, he, well, he wasn't the only culprit, though, was he? Uh, I mean, you know, this is a two-part question. Uh, I, I recently, um, actually just a few days ago, I finished listening to A Stitch in Time. So did I, yeah. Oh, my God. And in many ways, I think A Stitch in Time and the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko are like bookends to Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Where they're talking like at or to each other from different ends, you know? Um, so, I mean, he had a culprit. He had help. Uh, but, I mean, I, I don't see the other options. Um, the other options were, we, you know, they would be speaking uh, whatever the Dominion dialect would be um, because it was getting kind of grim. So uh, it, was, it was the two people um, to put in charge of a plan like that were was Cisco and 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 Garrick? Um, no two other people, I think, could have carried off that plan in that way. When I was, I remember when the episode was first on all those years ago, and I remember watching it, and like in the way the Next Generation would always, and the original series would, would tie everything up properly. When they were going through this, I remember thinking they're not going to do what I think they're going to do. I was there going, the clearly the right decision. But then I started thinking, wait a second, this is DS9. DS9 will do this. And I was there going, <laughs> do they have the courage to kind of go through with it? And they did. And I was there going, this is brilliant. And I was there going, this makes, and it's only Cisco that could have pulled it off. Right. And it's only Cisco that could have pulled it off. And and um, I will say uh, in the autobiography, that is... Uh, touched on or addressed, but perhaps not in the way uh, readers may be expecting. Yes, absolutely. You're dead right. Now, there's one question I had. On the back of the book, you have a specific quote, right? I'm going to read it out because it's a brilliant quote. It is the unknown that defines our existence. We are constantly searching, not just for answers to our questions, but for new questions. We are explorers. There's a lot of Benjamin Sisko quotes that you could have picked. Why did you pick that one? Well, I will be honest. Uh, two things. Um, that quote, that beautiful quote, is from uh, the pilot episode, Emissary. 
um, with um, Ben uh, talking to the the prophets, to the wormhole aliens, trying to exp express to them what humanity is. And that quote, I will give credit where credit is due, because we discussed what quotes to, to give. That quote was offered up by Mr. George San Sanderson, the editor. Yeah. And when he when he when he and George does not know this, but when he offered that quote, I was like, damn, that's really good. I don't have anything. I don't have anything better than that. That's a good quote, George. I don't have anything better than that. That's the quote. That's the quote. You know, that's the quote. That's the quote. So hang on. What was what was what was your original idea to put there? Um, oh, I don't remember. Um, what was my original idea? It was an, it was obviously another quote. But I think I was thinking, um, oh, I can't remember exactly, but I think I was thinking something that Ben says um, in that same speech, but a little bit earlier. Mm. And um, um, and and George was like, this is the is the actual quote. And I was like, oh yeah, that's 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 it. That's it. I really don't remember because it was, it was no, this is a long time ago now. Um, if it comes to me, I'll I'll I'll, I'll say it. But I don't remember. But I know his his was the better one. His was the better one. And a long time ago, George and I had a, a, a one of our first actual conversation was that um, we would be always we, we an agreement we made is that we would always be true to the story. Yeah, you know. And he 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 was definitely right on that. So I'm interested. Like going through the book, there's a few kind of points I wanted to kind of ask you about. One is you make clear in the book that the events of the episode, the visitor were never divulged. Why did you decide that he wouldn't have told Jake? No, that's a great question. Because if you look yeah. at the end of All Good Things, Picard does tell them all what happens 25 years into the future. Why do you think Cisco held back and said, I'm not going to tell Jake what happens here? See, you're, you're really good, Joe, because <laughs> uh, I thought about that. I thought about that. And I, I thought, well... Would he tell his kid? I mean, at the time, that was season four. I think that was season four. Yeah. So, you know, Jake wasn't that old then. He wasn't, you know, Jake has always been a little naive, even though, even though he was, he was, you know, growing. He was, so he was um, at that age, uh, about what, 16, 17, you know? Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't know if he would have told him. Oh, you, you become this man that becomes bitter. That just can't let go, and these are themes and things. Do you want to tell a sixteen-year-old these kind of things? And you know, and 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 there was a lot of pain in that episode that Jake held on to, and mm. I didn't know if a father would want to express that to his sixteen-year-old kid. You know, yeah. Now, if Jake was older, I'm sure he would have told him. Yeah. You know, like if Jake was twenty twenty-one, he'd have been like, "Hey, look, man, you know." this is what you do and 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 you know you're gonna have to let go which is why in the autobiography he says look this is what happened and i don't want a repeat of this yeah because i can see it happening because it happened then and i can see you you know going to do that now and so that is what is in a lot of ways is part of the framing device of of why ben starts talking to uh, Jake the way he does for the uh, for the book. Like going through the book, especially Cisco's early life and things like that. And obviously, it you know, a lot of the inspirations that he has, especially to come from his family and things like that, 
probably were inspirations for yourself. So you mentioned the jazz music, musician Oscar Peterson at one point in the book, and you said that he had a lot to get out. And when I read that, I was there going, is Derek talking about himself here? Did he have a lot to get out? And is that why he's put him inside here? Wow, that's interesting. Uh, in that case, uh, I didn't, I, 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 I've always loved jazz. I see jam blues. I love that piece. And I was going to use that piece, but I didn't know a lot about Oscar Peterson until I started just drilling down. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oscar Peterson is great for the story because he started at five. And at the time in the book, uh, Ben is like six. So that's perfect. And in regards to getting out, there's a lot of things that I've always wanted to get out or had to get out. And I've done it through writing. But I think it doesn't matter what medium you use. I think we all have something that we all have things and emotions that we have to get out. And we we find different ways to articulate that, you know, yeah. find different ways to get it out. Um, for a lot of people, it's through music. For me, is it's been through writing. Um, a lot of other some people's through art, you know, there are different, there are a myriad of different ways. And so for Ben, I knew it was going to be music, but I'm still talking about a lot of the same things you know yeah. and if i'm a if i'm a writer um with with any uh with, with any skill i i i should be able to articulate things for this character whether i've lived them or not you know yeah you know does that does that make sense you know so and there's a certain point when i was writing um a young ben cisco and it was just all uh i, I it was just coming to me as as easily as i was writing for um someone that was an actual flesh and blood person um, was that a car horn I heard beeping in the background there, Derek? Yeah, yeah. It's New it's York. The Bronx, after all. It's the Bronx. It's New York and the Bronx. Can't. <laughs> um, okay, in the book, I, there, there is something I have to specifically ask you. Pizza. How much do you love pizza? Oh, I love pizza. Let's just get this obviously too much. Have you seen me? I love pizza. <laughs> I love pizza. And... And I'll tell you something about that about that scene. I was writing that scene, man. I was writing that scene. This is the honest truth. I was writing that scene at like 2, 2 30 in the morning. I was really hungry. And I, it's not good to eat at 2 in the morning, but you know, writers, right? And I was like, no, I'm not gonna eat because you know, it's the last thing you want to do. I'm like, ah. Oh. And I was like, you know what? Pizza. Pizza <laughs> and baseball. Yeah, I'm just gonna go nuts with this scene. <laughs> and I read it and I'm like, well, that's pretty funny. And I read it and I'm like, okay, but I was, I was, I was tired. I had been like, it was one of those days that I had literally been writing the whole day. And it was like two, almost three in the morning. And I was like, I, I gotta get to sleep. I gotta, I gotta be up. Cause from my schedule, I was like getting up around six, six 30 mm. every morning. And so it was already like two, two 30 in the morning, you know? So I was like, I, I gotta go to sleep. But I was like, let me write this one last scene. So I wrote it. I thought it was pretty funny. I went to sleep. I woke up around 6.30 in the morning. I read it again. I'm like, well, this is really, this is a little nuts, but it's funny. And I, we kept it as is, you know? And uh, I just thought uh, like Ralph and the whole scene, I, I just really enjoyed writing Ralph. So my question that went along with that is, where is the best place to get pizza? Oh, well, it's it, well <laughs> I believe it's New York City. I don't think there's any place better than New York City. 
Uh, but which there, place in New York uh, City is your oh, favorite? God, yes, um, there you go. I, I will tell you, there is this place, um, Tony's Pizza, I believe was the name of it, is um, I used to go to John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Um, to, I went there to finish my degree. And it was like this hole in the wall right across the street from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. So that would make it like 58th Street and 10th Avenue. And they've been there forever. And it's a little hole in the wall, but they've been there forever because they have the best pizza. And I have tasted pizza, and it's the best I've tasted in Manhattan. Um, in the Bronx, there's a really good place um, on Allerton Avenue, um, but I can't remember the name of it right now. But it's usually hole in the wall, especially in, in New York City. It's usually like the big places is usually, ugh. but the hole in the wall mom and pops are are still the places to find really good pizza because to exist, they have to have really good pizza, you know, to, to still be around, they have to have really good pizza. So those are the, those are two of the best places that I, I've known. Um, and, uh, I, and I know, Derek. I have to ask you this, this obvious question as well: pineapple on pizza, yes or no? What kind? Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? No, no. Gosh. Anyway, this interview is over. We thank her. <laughs> I've never done it, so oh, to be honest, God. I've never Derek, done it. On, like, maybe what? one day. I I know. Maybe one day I'll do it. You know. Maybe. Maybe if we if we meet in person one day. Yes. Yeah. We'll do that. Okay. All right. I will wait for that. I will wait for that. Okay. But Derek, what's oh, your writing man. style then? Like when you're writing, do you kind of do you listen to music? Do you write in silence? What is the way that you effectively write? Uh, usually it's music. Um, sometimes I just need to tune out everything. I'll write in silence. Uh, for a lot of this uh, book, I I started trying to listen to like Star Trek music, and that didn't work for me. Um, for this, um, which is really interesting, because I usually love um something from Star Trek if I'm writing something about Star Trek. Um, interestingly enough, I found um I listened to a lot of um Marvel's Black Panther, um one and two. And those themes and that music, um, African beats, international music, a lot of that really um, got me going. Um, uh, for some reason, that that music, uh, I think because that music um, is just um, seems to be very in tune with the, the character. And I knew that a lot of what Benjamin Sisko represented was Afrofuturism and, and all yeah. that. And it just kind of helped propel me. Um, and then there were days that I just would listen to nothing and just just write just write 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 just one of the things as well as you talk when ben is making the decision to leave earth and he's going to go to the starfleet and all that and his dad brings him to the museum that teaches about kind of black history and things like that how important kind of was it for you to kind of bring down the book in terms of he has no knowledge of this and like obviously we're talking about something that would happen say in the 1950s we're talking about the 23 whatever 40s 50s kind of thing like that mm -hmm. do you think it's important to kind of like in the way that say society culture currently is that there's a kind of bit of an attempt to kind of you know airbrush a lot of the history and all that how important is it for you to kind of say in the 24th century we should never forget what's kind of you know what has happened and how it informs us going forward i think it is essential because the only way to well first of all gene roddenberry 
uh, I thought a lot about Gene Roddenberry. And in creation of the original series, uh, Gene Roddenberry says in the original series that World War III happens and that we mess up. We mess up really bad. Uh, a lot of people get, you know, billions of people die. And then after that, we realize we've done so badly that we start to turn a corner. And then Zephyr Cochran creates the warp drive and then the Vulcans come and we start to like really unite. And so I thought about that and I said, well, the only way that that, at least in my opinion, for that to happen is you have to remember what has come before. You can't, there's a, there's a saying, I'd rather, I'd rather uh, hear an uncomfortable truth than a yeah. beautiful lie, you know? And I think if you start to just erase things that are uncomfortable, you are destined, destined to repeat them. But if you keep those uncomfortable, ugly, and yet honest, factual points in history alive and remember them, then you can say, you know what? We did these things. These things were horrendous and we did them to other human beings. Let's not do them anymore, <laughs> you know? Let's, let's move past those things. And so then once I had thought all that out of my head, I said, okay, so in the Star Trek universe, they should have remembrance centers all around the globe so that if Earth is this utopia, it just can't be presto magical utopia. It has to have these remembrance centers where people of every generation can still go and still watch these events and that these events can weigh on people so that they can know not to do these things. And that way, those things stay with us, but they're not a part of us. We're moving past them. We're remembering them. And that's why uh, in the book he has, um, there's a, a, a racism and remembrance um, wing. There's a war and remembrance wing. You know, so I figured there would be different wings, but they would always be um, punctuated with remembrance. Remember so that you don't forget, this is who we were. Let's not be that in the future. And like you do see in the episode of DS9, but Vic Fontaine, where Cisco does talk about like, you know, at this point in actual human history, this is actually what was going on like. And uh, then your book kind of informed where he kind of learned that from. And it's interesting what you said there about, you know, the way that we talk about their fleet being a utopia. And you saw it small bits in the original series and the movies in The Next Generation, but you see a lot more in DS9 in terms of the people who betrayed Cisco. And it's funny because it was only when I was reading the book, as I was finished it last night, and I was reading through one part of the book, and I was there going, oh, wow, he's actually been betrayed by quite a lot of people. And you've got <laughs> Cal Hudson, you've got Michael Eddington, you've got Admiral Layton, and you've got Cassidy Yates. And I was there going, oh, my God, he put his faith in the wrong people so much, didn't he? Like, And it kind of showed that there is this kind of very you know, sinister edge to it. And like when he talks about Cal Hudson specifically, and he's kind of talking about you know, maybe I could have gone down that road. And again, it kind of, as you were kind of saying about how fleshed out the character has been over the years, not just in relation to his relationship, but his, with his son, with his kind of his wife, who kind of from the mirror universe and all that kind of thing. It's his relationship with people he would mean his friends, his mentors, his, you know, now wife and all that kind of thing, that he has had such a kind of a struggle to kind of keep on going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. I tried to show parallels uh, in the book, um, parallels of relationships, parallels of life, life experiences. And, and I think even Ben mentions, you know, well, that he had the, the prophets to kind of like break him out of where he was, yes. um, out of his grief. 
and that Cal never had that. Cal never got that. And and that, you know, if he hadn't had that experience with the prophets, he probably would have gone the same route as Cal, you know? And because we we all experience things, you know, sometimes similarly, but sometimes differently. And so I'm just trying to show a lot of those um those parallels with, with characters. And at the same time, give Cal Hudson um kind of round him out um for the reader as well and kind of finish that story, you know. And in terms of guest stars, especially guest stars and Starfleet officers, did anyone ever fill a Starfleet uniform out better than Bernie Casey did in the Maquis? He just looks uh, magnificent <laughs> in the uniform. He looks phenomenal in the uniform. He does. He walks, he, he does. He, he walks into Cisco's office. You're going, my God, that man looks glorious in that uniform. <laughs> it's like they poured him straight into it. He looks phenomenal. <laughs> in terms of say, as the book goes by, there's a lot of references to Star Trek characters. You know, but we've got Doctor Pulaski. We've got a reference to Captain Uhura. We've got Spock getting his hair cut in the barbers, which I thought was absolutely because <laughs> they're going. The man has to get his hair cut somewhere. As they're sometime. Right. Uh, we've always got the reference to Jordy. We've got the reference to Data. Now, I was really interested about the one with Data. Why did you put him on the ship? I wanted to write Data. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I love Data's character. Um, but this was also a really great moment because I realized a lot um, in, in books and a lot uh, in episodes specifically episodes, whenever someone meets Data, they're just so amazed that he's an android, you know? And I imagine that must be a little uh, weary for Data. Right? And Like someone mispronouncing someone's name (laughs) wrong for 40 years. Right, right. when someone mispronounces your name. And so I I really like tackling things from different directions, you know? And so when 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 data you know, when he Ben doesn't take that route with data, yeah. it surprises data. Yeah, he's like, oh wait a minute, and and you know it also makes a commentary about um, stereotypes yeah. and the stereotypes that we make and the presumptions we make about people. So I, I thought it was a great um, moment to put in, you know. And in terms of say like Trevor Scott, though I did not see that coming, right? But. It plays into this brilliant theme of the fact that he's been in love a few times and it's ended. But what I like is they end for kind of reason that he has to put a bit of thought into in terms of saying, is it right to end this? And it's this very mature approach he has to how the relationships grow, develop, and then how they end as well. And I thought that, was again, that's kind of where it really kind of the voice of Cisco came true in terms of. This is exactly how he would actually approach the situation. Yeah, yeah, and and by the time we get to Deep Space Nine and Emissary, uh, Ben Cisco is surrounded by by women. You know, um, Kira, Cassidy, um, the Kai. You know, uh, there are a lot of women on Deep Space Nine, and so I wanted him to be familiar um, and just be comfortable around around women and strong women. Strong women, know? yeah, hundred percent, yeah. Women's, Specifically, and and I've always wanted to write a Trilla Scott story. I just thought that it was a character; it was a beautiful character, and I, I just never really liked the way that the character went out. So I was like, "Well, this is an opportunity," and I think it not only is the opportunity, but it makes sense to put her with Ben 
it just really it really worked when I I was thinking about it, but as I wrote, it, I was like, oh yeah, this really this really works between the two of them, and then it, it gave parallels. It, it fit her her uh, her story and her arc. It fit, and it, it really fit for Ben and what was going on in his life before her and after her. You know. In terms of, say, towards the end of the book, there was something I saw and I was convinced I was looking at, I, I was, I turned the page and I was there going, what the hell? I said, something's not right in this book here. <laughs> and you know exactly what it is. And I was there going, wait a second, how the hell did he redact something in his own book? And I was there going, this is really weird. So I'm not going to ask you what was there because there's a reason you've redacted it. However, mm -hmm. I have to ask you, did you write something? specifically yes. for you did yes. I mean, you reject, but you're going to keep yes. that to yourself correct yeah yes and jake <laughs> <laughs> i mean if sarah lofton asked me what it was i'll tell him but uh, i mean and 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 my editor knows and that's it the three of us you know that's it yeah so you'll tell you you'll tell me after the podcast right nope Nope. <laughs> the whole reason for this interview is to be for me to find that out. <laughs> it's only an hour into the interview. That's all you tell me. Um, there, there's a lot of growth in this book, like you know, in terms of say Cisco, in terms of say even like not just him, but the, say the growth of his entire family, like his mother's father's brother's sister. One of the things I was conscious of is that DS9 went off the air what like over 23 years ago now. So if we're to treat that in real time, we can say that Cisco has been gone for 23 years. What growth do you think he's kind of undergoing right now as he's with the prophets? Wow, that's a heavy question. Wow. Um, you well, didn't come I, up here I, for the easy questions, Derek. I, I warned you not. this would be tough. That is a great question. Nobody's even asked anything like that. I would hope uh, that Ben has learned things he didn't know about himself, but also about time and the cosmos. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, because it's nonlinear. So for him, I don't even know if he'll be aware of, uh, the, passage of the, time. Passage, the passage of time, because the way I wrote it, you know, he he sends that message to, to Jake, and I don't think this is really that much of a spoiler. He sends that message to Jake um, as soon as he, as he gets enters there, the, yeah enters the you know but it doesn't get to jake until like a year later because he's still he's not fully understanding what you know of his own ability you know so that that's a really interesting question you know um how long would it take to become a, a master of of non-linear time and space in the cosmos would it take 23 years 23 minutes would it you know I, that's a great question that's a great question you have to you have to think about that and come back on and tell us your further thoughts on it at some point. <laughs> and where do you think Jake is now? Oh, that's a little bit easier. Um, I I think uh, if if you if you use this this book as a continuation, then I would hope that Jake took the messages in this book um, to heart because that's what his father would would have wanted, and that he uh, went and um, lived his life. You know, and has lived his life um, um, because his father's there with him. His father's there with him in those words. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm I'm sure um, Jake being Jake uh, would speak truth to power and uh, been in some really uh, cool adventures. Uh, maybe one day if uh, 
anyone's listening from uh, Star Trek, I would love to write some of those adventures or be a part of some of those adventures. Guys, I have ideas. Uh, but but um, yeah, I think I think that's uh, that would be a great place to take Jake as a person that speaks truth to power because we always see things from the Federation point of view and we yes. automatically presume it's the right the right point of view, it's the right idea. But it would be nice to have someone like Jake, who's like still on the outside saying, hey, I don't know if we should do that. I don't know if we should do this thing, you know, and him being a, a reporter would be really, really cool. Like a, like a Bob Woodward kind of person. And just kind of pulling it back one question again, in terms of say, what with Cisco being with Providence, obviously, you know, nonlinear time and things like that. Like, what do you think is the actual point in him being there? Like, what is it that they're trying to teach him or what's he trying to learn from them? What do you think is the overall point of him being there? Because obviously he hasn't returned. So there has to be a reason that he's not back. What do you think is the overall point of, of him being there? Well, I will say I did think about that. And um, I will say that uh, I, not only did I write this sort of biography, but there are what you could call like nonlinear moments in the autobiography. Um, and and I kind of I've I kind of um, asked that question as well in those nonlinear moments. Yeah, you know, um, because I don't think it's a lot of what we all think. You know, I don't think that I don't think that. Uh, a lot of what the prophets say can be um, determined and in and in, and in, in, um, and dissected in a lot of different ways. So I I'm I, from what I believe I don't know who is the emissary. Is it Ben? Um, is it Jake? You know, because a parent is the emissary of their child, right? Yeah. And if non-linear, if everything is non-linear to the prophets then they could just be looking to wanting Jake, but Ben could be the process to do that. Yeah. So there are options, you know, anyone that wants to, to um, use this for anything mm -hmm. in Star Trek, there are ways to do that from what I've written, you know? Just in terms of then say like, when the next generation would have started, the obvious concern is at what point is the original you know, people brought back in and things like that. We had a coming appearance into Forrest Kelly in the pilot and all this kind of thing. Like the main two characters, obviously, were Kirk and Spock. With Spock, you mm -hmm. had this easy story of reunification, it made total sense. With the character of Shatner's Kirk, I always felt personally, it was going to be impossible to bring him back because like what story of what magnitude could bring him back? And my question is, if you were to bring Cisco back, like, would it be like as an appearance in, say, Lower Decks, because that's the current show, show the 25th, 24th century, or well, 25th century, as we kind of moved into now, would it be a movie? Would it be in a show like Picard or something like that? And the problem is then is like, do you bring him back to keep him back and just put him back to a day job of your filling in progress reports? Like, what story can bring him back in what way? I I know they brought him back in the in the novels. I know he's he's back in the IDW comics. Yeah. If I was to bring him back, I would do something very different. Um, just because I I I I have thought about it, and um, again, I would do it from a different perspective, and I would be thinking more non-linear and more from the prophet's point of view, 
You know, we are always thinking about it of we want Cisco back. We want to see things, you know, and I, I don't know. And also, I don't know if, if Mr. Uh, Avery Brooks would want to come back. But if 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 it was me, I'd probably bring him back for like one scene. Yeah. Honestly, you know, and it would be a very powerful scene. Yeah. And then that scene would be the jumping off point for a lot of stuff that I got in my head, you know, because you you could bring the Cisco back. And then that could be the uh, the starting off point for so many things. Just in terms of, say, the relationship as well between Ben and Jake, how important do you think that was throughout the entire show? And even well, I think, going forward, like it's still kind of it's still something to be discussed because at some point something will happen and expose. Right. How do you think that, like how important was it, first of all, throughout the series, but two, if it was if if it ever happens or brought back, how do you think the relationship would be at that point? That it was is what's beautiful because um as a writer, um and, and let's say it is like 23 years or 30 years or whatever, you know, and Jake is now a grown man, right? And let's say he has kids or whatever. I mean, now it's it's a whole beautiful thing of of rediscovering your parent after not seeing them for so long. And I mean, this such rich, fertile soil of, of, of material for that. Because, um, and even if you were to use like elements of this book as canon, you could just, you could just go crazy because there's just so yeah. much to do. What did you feel in terms of, say, the importance of Benny Russell Wallace in DS9? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I mean, it was just, a, it's, it's a phenomenal episode. It was a pivotal episode for Star Trek, for, for um, Deep Space Nine, um, the telling of the story of a Black writer in 1950s that can't get his stuff published, not because he's not any good. He's a good writer, but simply because of the color of his skin, he can't get anything published, is a very honest story. Um, it, it, it has happened still in many ways. You know, it's not something that just happened in the 1950s. It's something that is still to some degree happened. I mean, we look at Octavia Butler and 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 uh a lot of that. Um we look to her. Um so the fact that Star Trek took that on and dealt with it honestly and candidly and in our face and yet entertained us in a mind-blowing way is is everything. Then on top of that, having the idea that it is Benny Russell writing all of Star Trek, coming up with the idea of all of Star Trek is a very powerful notion. Um, and I don't think it diminishes in any way the uh, ideas and, and, and morals of, of um, Mr. Gene Roddenberry, not in any way, because he is the one that his origins allow for all that, you know? So he's the one planting and, and creating that fertile soil so that a Benny Russell can grow in that soil. Um, and the idea of a Benny Russell. So it's a very powerful thing. So um, it, it, it's just an, an incredible piece of American television. Um, I think it's one of the top five still today. It's funny, you mentioned in the book about, and it, again, this, this is the 159 question I kind of have for you, <laughs> is that we we spoke a long time ago on the podcast um, about the fact that there's probably a lot of Wolf 359 support groups out there that, you know, Ben Cisco is a part of. And I'm often thinking of the fact that 
the Battle of 359 would have probably taken place in the calendar, like the start of the year or like January 1st or January 2nd mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm often wondering, like, if the Enterprise was ever at like a starbase, like around that time, like, could you imagine Captain Picard walking into a room and it's like, what if 359 supporters group and here's Captain Picard? Oh, Jesus, sorry, lad, listen, I shouldn't be here. That's <laughs> all kind of thing. How important was it for you to kind of bring in the fact? Because like, it's not like, like, I like the fact that Ben Sisko just comes through and says, like, a lot of us were discussed, but well, not disgusted, shocked by the fact that basically Picard was cleared for command again and put back in charge after all that he did. And again, that kind of lead again, it leads into his attitude towards him when he first kind of meets him in Emissary, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think when forgiveness is hard when you're hurting. It's a very human emotion, you know? And when you have, when you're hurt and your pain and your grief and your sorrow is, when you're living with it and it's so present and it's, it's bearing down on top of you, and then you're asked at the same time, concurrently, well, have forgiveness for this individual, for what they went through. I, I think the human thing is to not hear that, to not comprehend that. It's like, I, I have to get, there's a line in Star Trek V where, where um, Kirk says, I need my pain. And when I was a kid, I really didn't understand that. But as I got older, I was like, oh yeah, I get that. He needs that pain, you know? And he may not want it, but he needs it. And I think that's where Ben was talking about. He's like, you know, um, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to, that's not something I wanted um, to hear that this man was now always forgiven. And, you know, he's put back on the flagship and we're we're good. And I'm, the human thing is that there were people that did not want that. Yeah. And yet it happened. And I and I felt it only it would only add to the uh flavor and texture of the story to uh, address that. If you were to say, like you've written this book and you've obviously looked at it to the character so closely and things like that, if you were to go back DS9, season one, episode one, would you change how the seven years kind of worked, especially the first three years with the way the kind of the series ends up going down the road of him being the emissary, the connection with the prophets, the power rates and things like that? Would you change anything or would you say, no, how they did it is absolutely spot on? Well, two things. One, that that makes a presumption that I could do better <laughs> than the writers of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Not falling that trap. Uh because I'm I'm only writing on their shoulders. I'm only creating on the shoulders of Iris Stephen Bearer, Michael Pillar, Rick, Robert you know, Jim all of these, yeah. all of these gentlemen. Number two, really quick, is if Star Trek has taught us anything, is once you mess with the timeline, <laughs> things go wrong. <laughs> So, no. <laughs> um, we've got a few questions that came in from social medias out there. So Jody Pickens says, was there any one part of the story of Cisco that you really wanted to tell? Oh, my gosh. Um, any one part. I think um, I really liked telling um, the idea of... of um, not only Ben's story, but his father's story, you know, and his father has to deal, is basically, and, and the Cisco family is dealing with some trauma that stems back from, from Earth's um, dealing with racism and, and the Cisco's not wanting to leave Earth. And it takes Ben to kind of like break out of that, you know? And I think that that was an interesting story to, to tell and chal- that was challenging for me 
because I was like, well, how am I going to do this in a way that just doesn't beat people over the head yeah. and, and entertains them, you know, and explains these characters. And then I, um, I found challenging writing the uh, love story between um, uh, Jennifer and, and Ben in a meaningful way that we haven't seen on screen, but adding to that and finding ways to add to that, that was, that was kind of challenging as well. So those were really interesting. Um, Niall McDonald, for some bizarre reason, he once said to ask, do you know what the famous gumbo recipe is? Yeah, I know. But like Joseph, taking that to my grave. <laughs> but thanks uh, for asking. <laughs> um, Captain Antifa asks two questions here, actually. Uh, one is, what's the best starship and why is it defiant? And also, are you doing any book signings in Southern California anytime soon? Uh, okay, I'll ask the second one first. Um, nothing in uh, Southern California that I'm aware of. Uh, uh, no, I don't have any plans. Um, I will make announcements for um, any signings that I do. I am doing a convention uh, next week, um, WinterCon here in New York, and I'll be posting about that shortly. Um, the Defiant, I, my first one of well, my first love was the Enterprise. Wait a second, Defiant. which one at this point now? Because there was oh, been the original, no, no the bloody, movie Enterprise, the D. Right, right. <laughs> no bloody A, B, C, or D. <laughs> I mean, just the original Enterprise, right? Um, but that being said, um, the Defiant is a damn, damn fine ship and a tough little ship. And I, I love the Defiant. The Defiant, I think, in a lot of ways, is better than most starships because it's so small but powerful. It can just bob and weave in and out of things. So I think she's right, yeah. Uh, our friend Paul O'Connell as well says uh, the following question, which I'm surprised there wasn't on my list of questions. Why is Cisco the greatest Starfleet captain? Actually, do you agree with that statement? I do. I do agree with that. I, I agree I agree with that um, because I think um, he, he's balanced. He's He is a, a balanced character, a balanced uh, individual. And I think... Um, his balance is what gives him um his balance is what gives him uh is what makes him the best captain the other other characters they have certain trauma in their life that they that um Ben has but he's learned that life work balance better than anybody else Derek, normally we end the podcast with one question, but I'm going to actually ask you four. And the reason okay. I am going to do that is because I'm the host and I'm allowed to do that. Um, three questions in one go, uh, which is going to be, what's your favorite episode of DS9? What's your favorite Cisco scene in DS9? And what's your favorite Cisco quote? And you're not allowed to use this quote. <laughs> Woo! Uh, okay. Um, favorite, favorite, wow. Okay. Um, favorite, uh, D Space Nine episode. Um, I think it would probably be, uh, in, um, Far Beyond the Stars easily. Um, but then, uh, if I had to say like a running up, runner up would probably be, um, I think it's the episode with Ducat and um, Cisco. Is that Waltz? 
Yep. Or is we're stuck on the walk? planet. Yeah. We're stuck on the planet. That and in the pale moonlight. Those two, um, close second. Um, favorite Cisco theme. Theme. One theme with Cisco in us. Woo. Now uh, I give you, while you're thinking, I'll give you mine. And my favorite okay. Cisco scene is uh, one scene that I, I never feel gets remotely the credit it deserves, which is from the pilot emissary. And it's that moment when he realizes that he is trapped in one moment in time. And the prophet's basically, he keeps saying, why do you keep bringing me back to this moment of Jennifer's death? And they're, they're going, we're not doing this. You're doing this. And it's something that... I've often said that when somebody is experiencing a bad situation in their life, that you can be stuck in one moment of time and you keep dragging yourself back there. And unless you learn to move on, then you're always going to exist there. I think it's brilliant. I think it's so full of depth. And this is something that I don't think gets the credit deserve. And every book's performance in that scene is absolutely top notch. It's incredible. It's an incredible moment, not just in DS9, but in Star Trek as a whole. Gee, thanks, Joe. <laughs> you're, you're there going ditto whatever that man said there i'm taking oh uh, no that was great that was that was beautifully said and gee thanks that was beautifully said i i think also um i mean there's just so many but i i tend to go back to um emissary as well and it's like there's this one scene which is really about well, these two scenes which is really one is bookended is when he meets picard Mm. And he's just seething, seething with this anger. And it's written so well because it's so much going on between these two actors. Yeah. And they're playing the words even better than what the words are on the page, you know. And then at the end of that episode, when Cisco says so little, but in the little he says, he says that he's let go and he's shown yeah. that he's let go and he's saying without saying to the man, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, and it's all there in, in, in those two scenes, it's, it's all there. The anger and the forgiveness is all there between the two men. And so I think that's a very powerful uh, scene. Um, and does he have a favorite quote you said? Uh, there's this line, I think in season six, when they're about to, uh, the uh, Federation Armada is about to engage the um, Dominion uh, and Cardassian Armadas. And he says, there's an old saying, fortune favors the bold. And it's the way he delivers that line, which is phenomenal. Um, I, I really love it. But this is actually my favorite. The one that George picked is actually my favorite. But I think that is my my second one. Um, and then, of course, there's the Benny Russell line. Um, it's real. You know, you can't pulp in a, you, you can't destroy an idea. Yeah. That whole sequence of just acting, you know, when Benny Russell has his collapse in Far Beyond the Stars, it's just a, a powerful moment of television. I think one of those things as well about uh, Avery Brooks is when he flashes that smile and the great thing is he doesn't do it all that much. When he does, he it's absolutely magnificent. Like, as you know, there's a genuine warmth behind it as well. Derek, the very last question we have, and it's a question we ask all of our guests, is going to be, what does Star Trek mean to you? Well, it's like I told you um, before um, we started recording, um, there were four things that I think um, is pivotal in every Star Trek episode. 
Um, but I have found them pivotal in my life because they were taught to me um, by my, my my parents, and I try and live them, um, is uh, friendship, hope, science, yes, science, and exploration. And um, Star Trek has always meant the pursuance um, of all of those things, the acknowledgement and acceptance of all of those things in abundance, and the enjoyment of all of those things. And that's what I try and do in my life. So I think that's why I, I gravitate so, so fondly to, to Star Trek. Derek, thank you so much. For everybody watching, for everyone listening, Derek's book, The Autobiography of Benjamin Sisko, is out now. I would strongly recommend buying it. I had it read in a very short period of time. It's an absolutely brilliant book. So if you are looking for something to read, especially this holiday season coming up, please do consider it is an excellent book to read. Derek, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I have been your host, Joe Hurley, and we will see you again on another War Room soon. Thanks very much and live long and prosper. Thanks for having me. 